Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 30th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Two weeks ago, I made a, um, maybe last week, I made a clip about cutting New York off of my um, internet servers. That, that's, um, there's a lot of good listeners in New York, but there's also a lot of problems from New York. Christoginia continues to um, block most of, the, um, most of the traffic from what we consider just about every non-white country, or at least every country which has a, a um, tremendous majority of non-whites. And, and we've noticed already a, a drastic decrease in um, hacker activity and things like that. We haven't faced any new denial of service attacks. They're not really that frequent anyway. We had um, shut down the one against IsraelElect.com on the 19th and the 21st, and, and um, we probably won't notice another one because we've made it so that it shouldn't be able to happen again, not against Israel elect or against the main Christiania website anyway. We have um, many other websites that we host with controversial content with, with Christian identity truth, and um, it could happen again at any time against any one of those. We will um, continue to take such measures in the future. We're not going to ever give up attempting to spread this message as far and wide as God permits us to do so. The Epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians, part 18, eternal life through the Spirit, the Spirit of God bestowed upon the Adamic man. In the first portion of chapter 15 of this first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul of Tarsus discussed several basic but important and foundational Christian concepts. Firstly, he explained the reality of the resurrection of Christ as it was attested by so many witnesses. Then he illustrated the fact that if Christ was resurrected, then the children of Israel could also be fully assured of such a resurrection, since Christ had been slain for the sins of the children of Israel, so that they may indeed share in such a resurrection as promised by the Scriptures. Saying these things, Paul also interjected that if one is outside of these promises, then one's faith is vain. And we illustrated how the King James and other translations of the New Testament ignore Paul's language in this regard. Paul also asserted that not only the children of Israel, but also the entire Adamic race shall be resurrected. Where in verse 22 he wrote that just as in Adam all die, that in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive or made alive, if you will. This assertion summarizes the same things which Paul had explained at length a couple of years later 
the Epistle to the Romans was written probably two years after 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5 of that epistle, the children of Israel have a promise not only of eternal life, but also of justification. They've been rendered righteous by God in spite of their sins. This promise is expressed in many places in Scripture where the Word of God assures that all of the sins of the children of Israel shall indeed be cleansed. This promise is also expressed explicitly in Isaiah chapter 45 where it says that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. However, the rest of the Adamic race shall also be resurrected, and they too shall face the judgment of Christ in regard to their works. In relation to this resurrection and judgment, we quoted the words of Christ from the King James Version of John chapter 5 where that translation calls the judgment which the Adamic race faces at the end of days a damnation. We quoted that on purpose. We quoted the King James Version so that we could recap it here. The Greek word is not any word meaning damnation, however. It is the Greek word krisis, Strong's number 2920, which simply means judgment. And judgment does not necessarily imply damnation. But it is the translators who have apparently made God's mind up for him. Since the implication of the word damnation is quite foreboding, many Christians come to false conclusions when they read John chapter 5, as well as other scriptures. Rather, Christ had said in another place, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 11, that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south would arise in the judgment and condemn this race. He was talking to, and using that phrase, he was referring to his enemies in Jerusalem. For that reason, speaking of the race of Adam, Paul had said in Romans 5, as the King James Version has it, that therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, and I'm reading the King James once again, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Life is guaranteed to the entire Adamic race, and the reward in the judgment for one's works is another matter entirely. Paul had already explained that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Even if a man has no works, if they're all burned up in the fire, he himself will still be preserved. If the book of life is the word of God, then it must be. As Christ is the word made flesh, and if those written into the book of life who are called in the revelation the nations of them which are saved have access to the kingdom of God, as it says in Revelation chapter 21, 
then the nations of Genesis chapter 10 are all written into the book of life simply because they are found in the word of God as descendants of Adam. While no bastard can enter into the congregation of Yahweh, the men of Nineveh were Assyrians, descendants of Shem through Asher, just as the queen of, the queen of the south was an Adamic descendant of Ham. These Genesis 10 nations are all born from above, as Adam was born from above. And therefore, if the works of the devil are to be done away with in Christ, as the Apostle John had explained, then they shall all be part of the ultimate restoration of our race. The Adamic race has this promise at Genesis 3.22, where it says of Adam, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This was in order to make reparation for the man's having taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, representing those with whom he had committed fornication. As it says in the wisdom of Solomon, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Men should not imagine that the purpose of Yahweh God, as he designed his creation, can fail. It certainly cannot. Another concept which Paul illustrated was the abolition, the abolition of all rule, license, and power by Yahshua Christ at the end of the age. And this was where we left off in verse 24, in the middle of that illustration by Paul, which we actually also spoke about once again on last Saturday's program, Walking the Walk Part 4 with Brother Ryan. There is a big picture, a big picture which has everything to do with walking the Christian walk. There is a big picture which the Bible illustrates that can be broken down to one very basic concept. Men have a choice to follow Yahweh their God as their king or to have the rule of man as their king. But men really have no choice at all because in the end, only Yahweh God can be king. And they will learn that difficult lesson one way or another. Adam rejected God for his own worldly desires, choosing to depart from the law of God and to follow after his wife. Nimrod was singled out from among men because he asserted his own power to rule over others. Later, the children of Israel rejected the rule of Yahweh outright in exchange for a worldly king. The Bible depicts each of these events at the relative beginning of a new age in the history of man and also depicts these events as a deep 
departure from God on the part of man. Therefore, Yahweh himself took on the form of man so that he would indeed be their king. And Yahshua Christ alone is the king of kings. Man wanted an earthly king. They're going to get it in God. Paul understood this concept, and he expresses it here in his own words. Although he wrote this epistle 40 years before John had recorded the words of Christ in the Revelation where Yahshua himself illustrates it, illustrates that same concept at length. So Paul professes that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection and that the anointed, his people, would be resurrected on his arrival. By the phrase, his arrival, Paul referred to the promised return of Christ. Sadly, this is something which even many identity Christians refuse to accept literally. However, in Acts chapter 1, we see this recorded in a conversation between certain messengers of God, angels, if you will, and the apostles themselves, where we read from verse 9. And when he, referring to Christ, had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. If God cannot transcend his creation, he's not God at all. God certainly can transcend his creation. Scripture and history prove it over and over again. Paul then says that the consummation would occur when he should hand over the kingdom to Yahweh, who is also the Father, when he shall abolish all rule and all license and all power. With this, we see Paul's profession that all of the worldly systems and governments of man shall be abolished at the end of the age. Understanding that the systems and governments of men are the result of the sins of men, no matter how well intended their creation was. Christians should seek to conform themselves to Christ and to the law of God now, preparing themselves for their one true king as he admonishes them where he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is the true gospel of the kingdom. That was the entire theme of the recent episode of Walking the Walk with Brother Ryan this past Saturday. With this, Paul of Tarsus continues to explain things relating to the return of Christ. 
with verse 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Indeed, it is necessary for him to reign until he should place all of the enemies under his seed. The last enemy abolished is death. Therefore, all are subjected under his seed. The last enemy abolished is death. And in a revelation, in chapter 21, we read from verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There are many who would make excuses for those not written into the book of life, which are ostensibly all of those so-called races and so-called nations who have no promises whatsoever in the scripture. They have no origination without patriarch Adam. And those people who would make excuses claim as even Wesley Swift so wrongly claimed, that the lake of fire represents some sort of cleansing force. Rather, the lake of fire must be a destructive force because hell, death, the beast, and the false prophet certainly cannot ever be cleansed. You can't clean up. Hell, death, the beast, and the false prophet. The lake of fire is an allegory for a cessation of existence. It can't be anything else. God created the Adamic man to be immortal. And although, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 27, that it is appointed unto men to want to die, and after this, the judgment. That judgment for the endemic race is a judgment of life. As Paul referred, as Paul wrote, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 5, in verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so... By the righteousness of one, meaning Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. There's no exceptions. The Adamic man, while he perceives death in this life, is truly immortal. The purpose of this life being the experience of sin so that man may better serve God in the life that matters, in the life to come. As Paul had said in Romans chapter 8, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In verse 27 here, Paul quotes from Psalms chapter 8, verse 6, or the verse 6 of the 8th Psalm. The Psalm itself refers to the creation of the Adamic man in Genesis chapter 1. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. 
Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yeah, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This illustrates another thing that I plan on talking about a little later in this presentation. It's the dominion mandate of Genesis chapter 1. If that dominion mandate is given to the Adamic race descended from the Adam of Genesis chapter 2, then there's only one Adam, right? Otherwise, somebody has a serious problem. Like all those clowns that think there are more than one Adam, yet still claim the dominion mandate for the Adam of Genesis chapter 2. That's pretty stupid. David wrote Psalm 8, and he claimed the dominion mandate for himself. He must be one of those Genesis 1 Adamites, right? The Adamic man had fallen for the purpose which Yahweh intended for him. And of course, there was only one Adam, as it is described in Genesis chapter 3. A thousand years being a day to God. The last 7,500 years have all been a part of the process of correction. Paul reiterated this subject in subsequent letters. In his epistle to the Ephesians, written much later from Rome, while Paul was a prisoner, Paul spoke in a process as if it was completed. There, in chapter 1, he prayed, speaking of the sovereignty of Christ, that he is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And this put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things, to the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. This does not mean that it was actually completed, but is only a reflection of Paul's Christian expectation. In his epistle to the Hebrews, which was evidently written from Caesarea not long after his arrest, but long before he wrote Ephesians, at least a year or two. Paul wrote more pragmatically, quoting this same song again in chapter 2 of Hebrews. And he says, but one meaning David, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with honor and glory, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see all things not yet put under him. 
But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. He's the Father and the Son. And bringing many sons under glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies God and they who, they who are sanctified, the children of Israel, are all of one for which he cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name under thy brethren. In the, midst of the, in the midst of the assembly will I sing praise unto thee. This sanctification was also a matter of prophecy for the children of Israel, which Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 13. So we see Paul profess in Hebrews, speaking of Christ, but now we see not yet all things put under him, which agrees with what he has written here as we continue in this epistle. There's another lesson in quoting Psalm 8, which Paul has done several times in relation to Christ. And that lesson is that even though the children of Adam were given a dominion mandate, over God's creation. They really can't have dominion unless they are obedient to God. Christ, the only son who is entirely obedient to God, he therefore holds the dominion mandate. Nobody else. Continuing, verse 27. Now, until it may be said, that it is evident that all things have been subjected. Because outside of the subjecting of all things to himself, and until all things are in subjection to him, then also the Son himself will be subjected in the subjecting of all things to himself, in order that Yahweh may be all things among all. And yes, that verse is a tongue twister, a mind bender. As far as this translator is concerned, the King James Version has garbled these verses, and other translations do not do any better. Admittedly, the language of the passage is difficult. However, Paul is explaining that Christ, who is the Word made flesh, is subject to his own Word until that Word is fulfilled. In his Word, he had ordained a seven times period of punishment for the children of Israel. He had also ordained a prophesied time of Jacob's trouble. He had given a license to his adversaries 
and the wicked world system, which is called in a revelation, Mystery Babylon, that it would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell until all of those times of punishment are completed. Now, we pray that we're close to the end. We await the fall of Babylon, as it is described in Revelation chapter 18. It would be... It would be absolutely foolish of us if we can understand the fulfillment of prophecy concerning the development of all of these things that we would disregard the certainty of their culmination. Babylon shall indeed fall. And for that, those are the children of God who love him must be prepared. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that they should be casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Doing that, Paul adds in verse 6, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Yahweh will not use disobedient children to defeat and punish the forces of mystery Babylon. The return of Christ where all things shall indeed be subjected under a seed, is described as occurring after the fall of mystery Babylon. In Revelation chapter 19, where the apostle says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and certainly not found in the Kabbalah. And the armies which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with rod of iron. And he spreads the wine of fierceness and wrath of God. And has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, <clears throat> saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of 
all men, both free and blind, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on a horse and against his army, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant, any who are remaining, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Ostensibly, it is, as, it is at this as of yet unfulfilled point in history, which is described in Revelation chapter 19, that all things shall indeed be subjected under Christ. This is the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is the consummation Paul talks about. This is the final reunion of God with the children of Israel. When all of those nations, which are described as being gathered against the children of Israel, shall be destroyed. As it is also related in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, as it is also related in Obadiah verses 14, 15, 16, the passages that these half-baked so-called universalist Christian identity pastors can't teach. This is what is related in Revelation chapter 20 and elsewhere. There is no disparity between the word of God in Ezekiel and the word made flesh in Revelation. There is no disparity between the words of Christ in Revelation or the promise in Jeremiah where Yahweh said to Israel, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. If all, as these universalists insist, if all means all in the Bible, then Jeremiah thirty eleven predicts the end, the full end of all non-Israel nations. And this prophecy is repeated almost verbatim in Jeremiah chapter 45, if you don't get it in Jeremiah chapter 30. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, speaking to the children of Israel alone. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. The nations of them which are saved in Revelation Chapter 21, that's the children of Israel. Understanding how so many nations can be destroyed while at the same time the promise of Christ is subject to subject all things to himself, that obviously doesn't include all those nations which are destroyed, which we see described in Revelation chapter 19, That understanding requires an understanding of world history within the context of the Bible.
and what things are a part of God's creation contrasted with what things are a part of the satanic corruption of God's creation, which had perpetrated, which had perpet, had been perpetrated. I'm sorry, I'm missing a word in my notes. Which had been perpetrated through the sins of both men and angels. That is the study of what we may call Christian identity. Verse twenty-nine. Otherwise, what else would they, and this is another difficult passage, difficult passage that causes many disputes. Otherwise, what else would they who are immersing themselves on behalf of the dead be doing if the dead are not raised at all? Why are they even immersed on behalf of them? The text of the Nestle A Land, Novum Testamentum Greca, in both the 27th and 28th editions, punctuates this verse a little differently. Otherwise, what else would they be doing who are immersing themselves on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they then immersed on behalf of them? The meaning is basically the same. This reading is also the way in which the early Christian writer Tertullian understood Paul's grammar. Tertullian commented on this passage in a couple of places in his writings. However, in his comments, it is evident that he did not know of this practice historically. Many Christians jumped to the conclusion that the Corinthians were practicing water baptism of themselves on behalf of their dead ancestors. Tertullian was not even certain of this ritual, of what Paul meant if these words were to be interpreted literally. in connection with the water baptism ritual. In his works entitled The Five Books Against Marcion, in Book 5, Chapter 10, Tertullian writes against Marcion because, among other things, Marcion rejected the notion of an actual resurrection of the body. In reference to this very passage here in 1 Corinthians, Tertullian writes that what asks he, meaning Paul, shall they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not? And then Tertullian says, now never mind that practice, whatever it may have been. So Tertullian didn't know what Paul meant where he said that what else would they be doing who are baptizing themselves on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are they even immersed or baptized on behalf of them? Tertullian admits 
in book five of the five books against Machion that he didn't know what Paul was describing. But Tertullian continues in his essay to use this passage of 1 Corinthians in support of the Christian notion of resurrection, which Paul explains in this chapter. This is mentioned in order to elucidate the fact that Tertullian, one of the earliest notable Christian writers, did not know exactly what Polytarsus meant by referring to people who were baptized for the dead. So we, if Tertullian, who was writing not even 150 years after Paul had written this epistle, if Tertullian didn't know what Paul was talking about, and he was a learned man acquainted with many scriptures, then we certainly are not going to know. However, we will conjecture. On the surface, if one has a denominational church worldview, it appears that Paul is describing people who undergo water baptism on behalf of the dead in the fashion of that ritual which the Mormons have today. Because the Mormons, with their crazy book, they actually do baptize themselves on, on behalf of their dead ancestors. However, that is not necessarily what Paul is describing. And no such ritual is known historically to have ever been practiced by early Christians. Even Tertullian did not know exactly what it was to which Paul was referring. However, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death. Nothing about water there. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It is more plausible that Paul is making an enigmatic reference to the many Christian martyrs being made at the time, or perhaps also to those devoting themselves to Christ in other ways, which his next statement seems to infer. And why do we risk every moment? Daily I am slain. Yeah, your reason to boast, brethren, which I have in Christ Yahshua, our prince. And some manuscripts want the word for brethren. The Codex Alexandrinus has our reason to boast rather than your reason to boast. I must offer an opinion that comparing 1 Corinthians 15.31 in the Christogenian New Testament to the King James. The Christogenian New Testament translation is very literal, word for word with the Greek. And comparing it, I have difficulty even conjecturing as to how the King, translate, King James translators arrived at their rendering of the text. 
Now, why do we risk every moment? The Greek word for risk is a verb, kinduo, which means to be daring, to make a venture, to actively take a risk, do a daring thing. And therefore, it is risk here. Saying this, Paul corroborates our interpretation of his statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 26, where speaking in reference to virginity, he said, Really then, I suppose that to be such is good because of the present violence, that it is well for a man to be so. However, it must also be understood that being persecuted, as we have demonstrated the Christians of this time, even though the mainstream historians often refuse to acknowledge this in the time of Claudian, that there were persecutions, there certainly were persecutions. It must be understood that being persecuted Paul was not persecuted as a passive victim. Rather, in his active effort to spread the gospel of Christ, he saw himself as openly risking his life. And the book of Acts, of course, demonstrates that. Therefore, he accounted himself as being slain daily in the threats and other obstacles which he faced from the enemies of Christ. Paul of Tarsus saw himself as a servant to the assemblies of Christ. Therefore, he accounted his sacrifices as being made on their behalf. Therefore, his trials, as he says here, his trials were their reason to boast, as if they had undergone such things themselves, even if they had not. Paul relates this explicitly in chapter 1 of his epistle to the Colossians, where he says in verse 24, Now, I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf. And I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed, not of Christ, of the anointed, of the people as a group, with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly of which I have become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh. So he basically has the same statement here, phrased in a very different way than he has in 1 Colossians one twenty four. Verse 32, 1 Corinthians 15. If like a man I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, people beasts, what good is it to me if the dead are not raised? We should eat 
and we should drink, since tomorrow we may die. Again, the Nestle Aland texts punctuate the verse a little differently. It's like a man I have fought with beasts in Ephesus. What good is it to me? And then beginning a statement, if the dead are not raised, we should eat and we should drink, since tomorrow we may die. And that punctuation is an acceptable alternative. Paul fought with beasts in Ephesus, ostensibly referring to the problems which he had with the silversmiths, as they are described in Acts chapter 19. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. He calls those who oppose Christ beasts, just as the Apostle Peter described those false prophets among the people who privily shall bring in damnable heresies and who deny Christ as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's what Jews really are. Jews, Negroes, Chinamen, just about anything else that has two legs and walks and did not descend from Adam. Peter describes them further as being infiltrators among Christians, cursed children who are distinct from Christians. He relates them to the angels that sinned, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Therefore, they must be a part of the corruption of God's creation, rather than being of the creation itself. Because clearly, they are not accounted as candidates for conversion to Christ. As Paul said of the Jews in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, referring to those who killed both Prince Joshua and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh, and contrary to all men. From the epistle of Jude, from, Jude, from, from John chapter 8, from Luke chapter 11, from Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, and from Romans chapter 9, it is realized that these things are meant to describe those infiltrators, those Edomite and Canaanite enemies of God. These things are not describing nearly apostate Israelites. The statement here which Paul uses to portray the attitude of those who have no hope in a resurrection, where he says we should eat and we should drink since tomorrow we may die, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 22 verse 13 in a statement made to portray the apostasy of the children of Israel, for which they were going to be carried off into the Assyrian captivity. If there is no hope in a resurrection, if man is not immortal, if the promises of God are empty, then our trials are pointless, and we may as well reduce ourselves to reveling in worldly lust, since nothing else would matter. Paul then refutes this idea by saying, in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad associations corrupt good character. This is commonly known 
this saying, bad associations corrupt good character, is commonly known to have been a quote by Paul taken directly from the Greek, the pagan, Greek poet Menander, from his famous play, Thahis. Paul must have read Thahis, or been pretty much familiar with it. The title character, Thahis, is actually a woman. She was a prostitute who had a passion for younger men. Perhaps Paul was reading some bowdy Greek literature at one point in his life. In turn, a certain fragment of the plays of Euripides is cited as a possible source for the quotation by Menander. A very similar adage, and perhaps Paul simply read Diodorus Siculus, a very similar adage is found again in Diodorus Siculus's Library of History. Diodorus Siculus used the phrase of King Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, describing Philip's bribery of those traitors who had helped him subdue the cities of Greece. This quotation from Menander is yet another demonstration of the fact that Paul of Tarsus was well-versed in the classical literature of the Greeks, doughty or not. Paul is warning his readers that character is corrupted by those who do not share in the same Christian hope, which was the problem of ancient Israel as well. Those who have no share in the Christian hope of resurrection, judgment of the dead, resurrection of the dead, eternal life, treasure, treasures in heaven. Those who have no share in those hopes do not have much use for Christian morals. If you have that attitude, we should eat and we should drink, since tomorrow we may die. Christians should not have that attitude. Bad associations corrupt good character. Paul's saying here that the resurrection is a certainty. He's refuting the idea that we should eat and drink because tomorrow we may die. And he says in verse 34, You should be sober with reason and do not commit error or sin. Indeed, some have ignorance of Yahweh. I speak from respect to you. That Greek, that last word, and again, appears once more in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5. This is a related verb, entrepo, for which at times the King James Version has reverence and at times regard. But on some occasions, to shame or to be ashamed, depending on the context. Paul is not necessarily using the word in such a negative context here. Verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what sort of body will they come? Evidently, these questions, which are still asked by Christians today, were being asked of Paul at the very beginning of the spread of the gospel. 
Paul compares the body with other things in nature and scoffs at such questions as if the answers should readily be known. The promise of a restoration of the physical body after death is, of course, found in the Old Testament. But it is not found frequently, nor is it described in great detail. We see in chapter 19 of the book of Job the profession, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. In Psalm 49, we read an admonition against the wealthy that it is not wealth which can save a dead man from corruption. And then we see the affirmation in verse 15. But God will redeem my soul, meaning my life, from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. Likewise, Christ in the gospel will store up treasure in heaven rather than on the earth. The same thing that Psalm 49 was warning them about. Since the heavenly rewards are eternal and wealth gained here is temporal, all of the Adamic race is indeed resurrected. But according to the gospel of Christ, it is their eternal reward which is determined by their earthly walk. From Luke chapter 18, from verse 22. Now when Jesus, once again quoting the King James Version, Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he, the young man who had professed to been keeping the commandments all his life, and when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Just as we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, and Christians are Christians are um, 
often poked fun at for disbelief in a resurrection. Just as we find in the Hebrew scriptures, in Greek and Roman pagan literature, the souls of the dead dwelt in the underworld. Originally in Greek it was called Tartarus. Later it was called Hades, after the name of the perceived god of the underworld. And the possibility of returning from the dead was expressed in legends and poetry, such as Euripides' play Alcestis, in the Odyssey of Homer, an entire chapter describes the visit which Odysseus made to Tartarus and his communication with the souls of the dead. Likewise, the ancient Sumerians, Assyrians, and Babylonians all had similar beliefs and stories about people dwelling in and even returning from the underworld, the home of the dead, later called Hades by the Greeks and Sheol by the Hebrews. The Greeks saw eternal life in the Isles of the Blessed in the Western Sea or in the halls of Olympus, just as the Germanic tribes saw eternal life for their heroes in Valhalla. The underworld was called Niflheim in the early Germanic sagas. In the Germanic poetry, after the great battle at the end of the age, Ragnarok, after Ragnarok is fought, the dead gods would live once again and be reunited in a renewed earth, much like the city of God in Revelation chapter 22, promises a new habitation for the children of Adam. All of these myths and legends recall various aspects of a faith quite similar to the one expressed by Scripture, even if they are given a worldly and pagan perspective, born through time by the various branches of the Adamic race. And that's, an, that's a digression which had to be made at this point. All of the ancient legends of the Aryan race believed these things. Paul replies to the questions posed concerning resurrection. And his use of the adjective which means foolish is in response to the question, but it was not meant to be a label for those who asked it. Foolish, the question in verse 35, Paul saw as foolish. That which you sow, is it not made alive, even if it may die? Other versions read the verse as a plain statement rather than as a rhetorical question. However, the meaning is still the same. The dead body is being compared allegorically by Paul to a seed which is planted in the ground. The seed appears dead and buried, but nevertheless, it eventually springs to life. And that which you sow, it is not the body that you sow that will be producing itself, but a bare grain, whether, for example, of wheat or of 
any of the rest. And Yahweh gives to it a body, just as he has willed. And to each one of those seeds, its own body. Paul makes the analogy that only a tiny part of the plant, the bare grain, which by itself does not even closely resemble the rest of the plant, is nevertheless able to reproduce the entire plant. The design of God ensures which sort of plant each seed produces. And Paul says, not all flesh is the same flesh, but one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts and another of birds and another of fish. And this is obviously an allegorical comparison, and all of the various types of flesh are not limited to these categories. By man, Paul must mean exclusively the Adamic man, or race mixing would not be considered as fornication in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or in Jude chapter 7. Yet, as we have seen in Peter, in Jude, and here in Paul, those other races which do not accept the gospel of Christ, which reject Christ, which are spots in our Feast of Charity, those who pretend to believe and, and, and they have eyes full of adultery and spread heresies while they feast with us. They don't bear the flesh of men because they're called beasts. Paul called them beasts. Jude called them beasts. Peter called them beasts. Those interlopers, those spots in our feast of charity. Pejoratively, it's a pejorative, they are beasts because they bear the flesh of beasts. They certainly don't bear the one flesh of man or fornication would not be the pursuit of strange flesh. So they are considered beasts. Not because there are any beasts that Yahweh created, but because they themselves are the products of the corruption of Yahweh's creation. And we've established that in other subjects here at Christogenia. Verse 40. And bodies in heaven and bodies on earth. But different is the effulgence of the heavenly, and different is that of the earthly. One effulgence of the sun, and another effulgence of the moon, and another effulgence of the stars. A star differs in effulgence from stars. And Paul appears to be saying that the earthly body of a man does not have the same effulgence as a spiritual body. And even different spiritual bodies may have a greater glory than others. And he goes on to say, in this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And I know that on that 
last clause, the King James Version, is missing the word if. And that's important. According to the notes published, along with George Rickerberry's Interlinear Greek-English New Testament, the 16th century manuscript of Stephanus, along with the 17th century manuscript of Elzevir, and really the Elzevir manuscript was um, advertised by the Dutch printer, that's what Elzevir was, as the Textus Receptus, but Berry, because of the history of the Elzevir manuscript, also considers Stephanus, along with the Elzevir, to represent the so-called Textus Receptus. And also, according to Griesbach's manuscript of 1805, Griesbach being, I believe, one of the higher German critics. All of those manuscripts are wanting the word for if at the beginning of the last clause in verse 44. And therefore, the King James reads, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body, as if to contrast the two. Now, this is an important difference. This is very significant because as the King James translates the clause, in that manner, the one, the natural body, would not infer the existence of the other, the spiritual body. This is another one of those tiny little changes in Scripture which can change a Christian's entire worldview and wrongly so. The texts and the critical apparatuses of the Vesli Alan Novum Testamentum Grecae in both the 27th and 28th editions offer no evidence of any such variation, the word if, which is missing, in any of the manuscripts it represents, none of the ancient manuscripts, and none of those of the majority text. In Greek, the word body only appears once in this clause, but twice in the King James Greek, in the King James English, I'm sorry, as well as twice in the manuscripts of Stephanus, Elzevir, and Griesbach. That means that the King James in this verse did not follow the majority text. Instead, it followed the manuscripts of Stephanus and Elzevir. Well, Stephanus, anyway. Elzevir's was published a couple of years after the King James Version. None of the ancient codexes, none of the ancient papyri, and apparently none of the manuscripts of the majority text support the reading of the King James Version for verse 44. With all certainty, all of the ancient manuscripts say, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And that is what we have to accept that Paul is saying. Because Jesus didn't drop into Westminster Abbey and give the gospel in English.
if there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Every Adamic man has an eternal spirit from Yahweh God. Paul is telling us that the existence of one does indeed infer the existence of the other. Paul is, of course, speaking of the resurrection of Adamic man. And in reference to Adamic man, in accordance with the biblical description of the creation of the Adamic man, and not of the resurrection of flesh or birds or even people of other races who are outside of the promises. And thusly, even if they claim to be of the faith, as Paul said earlier in this chapter, their faith would be in vain. From Psalm 17, from verse 15, a glimpse of what is more evident in the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake, meaning to awake from death, with thy likeness, meaning with the likeness of God bestowed in the spirit of of the Adamic man. As the wisdom of Solomon says in its second chapter, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If the Adamic man was made in the image and likeness of God, then the Adamic man has an immortal spirit, which God certainly is. In verse 44, the word for natural, natural in, in, in the Christogenian New Testament is sukikos. And the word for spiritual is pneumatikos. These are adjectives from the corresponding noun, suke and pneuma, which are usually translated as soul and spirit, as they are here in the subsequent verse, in verse 45. While they both may mean spirit, in the New Testament, the word suke was generally used to describe life, the life, the life force within the body, while pneuma was used to describe the spirit of man within or apart from the body, as well as the spirit of God. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul. The last Adam into a life-producing spirit. Here in verse 45, Paul paraphrases from Genesis 2-7, where it says, And man, the Hebrew word being Adam, became a living soul. This statement is actually true of both Adam and Christ. But one is being used by Paul as an analogy for the first, and the other is an analogy for the second. Neither is Christ the last Adamic man, in the sense that there were no others born into this world after him, but rather Christ is the last Adam, because ostensibly, only two Adamic men were ever created with the direct and personal intervention of Yahweh God. Even though Christ himself was God, and every other Adamic man, other than Adam, is merely a copy 
of the first. In Christian identity circles, Genesis 2-7 has long been interpreted as the act by which Yahweh imparted his spirit into the Adamic man. However, if Yahweh is a spirit, then his image is spiritual, and the imparting of the spirit is therefore represented in Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 5.3 as well. All three of these are different accounts of the creation of the same Adamic race, beginning with the first man, Adam. That is why the wisdom of Solomon says that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Verse 46. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual, the first man from out of earth, of soil, and the second man from out of heaven. There's a bunch of um, variations, which I'm going to read in the text here. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have the second man, the Lord from out of heaven. While the third century papyrus P46 has the second man, spiritual from out of heaven. Here the text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraimus, and Claromontanus. These are the first significant variations among the ancient manuscripts since verse 31 of this epistle, where some manuscripts only want the word for brethren. So the manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts, are remarkably consistent with one another in this later half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are some um, more significant variations towards the end. Paul is not referring to Christ alone, where he refers here to the second man. But rather, he is making an analogy which refers to the dual nature of the Adamic man, who bears the flesh of the earthly, but whose body contains the spirit of Yahweh from heaven. Adam had the gift of the spirit of Yahweh, but here Paul is using him as a type for the fleshly man. Christ is Yahweh incarnate, who took upon himself the seed of Abraham, Hebrews 2.16, so that he could be firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8.29, a claim which only God can make. And Paul is using the essence of Christ as a type for the spiritual aspect of the Adamic man. So the first Adam and the last Adam are types used here by Paul, the first for the fleshly man, the second for the spiritual man. Every Adamic man represents both types, the first fleshly, the second spiritual. There is a rather heretical viewpoint, which I must address here, which has permeated some Christian identity circles from an early time. This appears to have at first been an assertion of Wesley Swift, and Wesley did some 
wonderful work. But being human like the rest of us, he also made some mistakes. Swift believed that the spirit of man existed before the body and was somehow implanted into the womb along with the body prior to birth. Swift based this belief on certain scriptures which may be read as if to imply things that can lead to such a, such a conclusion, but which must not necessarily be understood in that manner. The scripture tells us that God knows men before they were born, and that is without doubt. But that does not mean that men know God before they were born, or that men had any conscious, any cognizance, any thought or identification of themselves. As Paul says in Romans, Yahweh calls things not yet existing as existing. He knows both men and nations before they ever exist. The latest manifestation of this heresy in Christian identity is found in the insane babbling of a Wesley Swift revisionist who we will only call Screwy Dewey who also believes that he alone has truth from God. He esteems himself to be a God, and he sneers at the rest of us. The words of Paul here clearly discredit screwy Dewey, because the natural man is first, and then the spiritual the spirits of men do not come first. They do not pre-exist outside of the mind of God. As Paul explains here, that first comes the fleshly or natural man, and then the spiritual. That the first man is of the flesh, and then a man is of the spirit means that the spirit does not exist until the fleshly man is brought into existence. Paul says that the spiritual body is sown in corruption, which is a natural body that comes from a fleshly seed. But it is raised in incorruption because it is immortal, even after the natural body dies off, because all flesh is as grass. All flesh is as grass, but the spirit of man granted by Yahweh lives forever. So we see that the same Adamic seed which produces the natural body also produces the spiritual body. Furthermore, if there is a natural Adamic body, then there is a spiritual Adamic body. But only Yahshua Christ, who is Yahweh God incarnate in the flesh, preceded the Adamic man apart from the natural body. He took upon himself the seed of Abraham. The rest of us got stuck with it by the circumstances of our birth. Not that that's a bad thing.
that each Adamic man or woman is born from above is only evident because, as the Apostle John says in chapter 3 of his first epistle, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. It's the seed that that spirit comes from. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. If you don't have the seed, you don't have the spirit. Some people scoff at that, that Yahweh needs something as lowly as seed to perpetuate his promises. That is clearly the vehicle which Yahweh God chose to perpetuate his promises. And if you scoff at that, you're scoffing at the promises of God. He chose to bless Abraham's seed. He chose to take upon himself the seed of Abraham. He chose to bless the seed of David. He created that seed to perpetuate itself and his creation kind after kind. Some fools that have associated themselves with screwy Dewey have scoffed at that idea and have reduced themselves to calling Christian identity phallus worship. They are basically not scoffing at Christian identity. They are scoffing and mocking the promises of God. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The spirit which is from above is transmitted through that seed at conception in the lawful union of an Adamic man and an Adamic woman. In this regard, the Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, described being engendered, meaning bred, being bred from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible. And that word is seed in the King James Version, but that word is not sperma like seed usually is. That word is spora, and to the Greeks, spora meant parentage being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, the other in mixed races, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh, who lives and abides. If the Adamic man is to maintain the integrity of the creation of God, then he is to maintain his own racial integrity. Because only the Adamic race was imparted this incorruptible spirit as a component of his genetic seed. Therefore, when Cain was expelled from the Garden of God, Adam bore a son, whom he called Seth, as a replacement for Abel. 
And the scripture makes certain to tell us that Seth was a son in his own likeness after his image in Genesis 5, 3. The other so-called races do not have this spirit, and neither do bastards, who are therefore broken cisterns, born of corruptible parentage, because not all of their ancestors were kind after kind with Adam. Flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, as Peter says, by the word of God. That is what Peter means when he describes being born from incorruptible parentage by the word of God. Paul goes on to relate his analogy, verse 48. As he of soil, such as those also who are of soil. As he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. Adam is of soil, and Christ is of heaven. Of course, Christ took on the seed of Abraham so that he was also of soil. Of course, Adam had the spirit of God, so he is also of heaven. However, Paul is using Adam as a type for the fleshly, Christ as a type for the spiritual. Christ is of heaven, he being the fleshly incarnation of Yahweh. These represent the two natures of the Adamic man, which Paul describes elsewhere often in other places. First the fleshly, and then the spiritual. It is not the other way around, as Wesley Swift and others have imagined and as screwy Dewey insists. Absolutely contrary to the words of Paul and to the Genesis account. Here Paul of Tarsus is only teaching the plain facts of Scripture, because this is the order of creation as it is explained in the book of Genesis. And he says in verse 49, and just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, meaning the fleshly Adam, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven, because we have the Spirit. If we are indeed pure children of Adam, we have that Spirit imparted to Adam, the same Spirit which is the essence of Christ, the Spirit of Yahweh. There is a natural body assured that there is a spiritual Adamic body. Another related heresy which permeates Christian identity is that there are Adamic men who do not have the spirit. Where it is also insisted that somehow there were multiple creations called Adam. In part one of our recent Pragmatic Genesis series, we have proven beyond argument beyond rational argument, that Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 5 all relate the creation of one and the same Adamic race from varying perspectives. The proofs offered there are far too detailed and voluminous to repeat here. In all the rest of Scripture, 
There are no historical or biblical Genesis chapter 1 Adamites as opposed to Genesis chapter 2 Adamites. As we saw David in Psalm 8 this evening, accepted the dominion mandate of Genesis chapter 1. You can't have it both ways. If you accept the dominion mandate of Genesis chapter 1 to apply to the Adamic race, then you have to understand that there's only one Adamic race. You can't claim to be a descendant of Noah who descended from the Adam in Genesis chapter 2. That is so childish and absurd. Wow. It's ridiculous. The more you think about the rest of Scripture, the more you understand there can only be one Adamic man in Genesis. Read the rest of your Bible. Screwy dewey. The Scripture says in many places that in six days, not in eight, did Yahweh make the heaven and earth and all that is in them? Those who insist that there were multiple creations of Adam, and only the Genesis 2 Adam has the spirit of Yahweh, Scooby Dewey is one of these clowns, and I'm singling him out tonight because he insists that the spirit is first and, and, and the flesh is second. Paul described it the other way around, as we have clearly seen. But if you believe Pope Dewey, he assigns you to that Genesis 2 category. If you do not believe Pope Dewey, he demotes you to the Genesis 1 category of Adam. He tells you that you don't have that spirit, and, and, and that's why you can't possibly believe him. Of course, that has all the hallmarks of a cult. Screwy Dewey is nothing but a cult leader. I'm sorry that not all of my listeners will understand who Scooby Dewey is, but I think that they'll understand the problem that I'm trying to describe. And the problem with this scheme, this Genesis 1 Adam, Genesis 2 Adam scheme, because that's what it is, is that there are no historical Genesis 1 Adamites. Show them to me in Scripture, please. All of the Adamic nations of history clearly descended from Noah and his sons. No Genesis 1 Adamites appear at all in Scripture or in history. Who may have escaped the region in which we had the flood, but they amounted to nothing in history or Scripture. It is only the other races who are not of Adam at all who did not descend from Noah and his sons here on earth with us today. The law of God is kind after kind. Why would he make two Adams, two different kinds? There's no support for that in Scripture beyond some of these harebrained interpretations of Genesis chapter 1. There's no support for it anywhere in Scripture. The Scripture, throughout the Scripture, the writers of Scripture take credit for having the dominion mandate, and they take credit for having the Spirit of God. We find a dominion mandate in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God in Genesis 2. The same dominion mandate is with Noah in Genesis 9, 
or at least a very similar one. Because it, it is all one Adamic race. God didn't give a dominion mandate to two different races and tell them to fight it out. They're not the two seeds of Genesis. Not at all. They're not both Adam. There are people who um, support this idea because of the way the Greek word anthropos is used in the Septuagint, as opposed to where the word for the name Adam appears in the Septuagint. These people fall short because they don't realize that the Septuagint, while it is of great value, is nevertheless an interpretation made of the Hebrew by third century Judeans. They're interpreting it after the manner they thought it should be. Without doubt, Christian identity represents the truth of history and scripture. Without doubt. But it needs to grow the hell up and accept the whole word of God rather than follow after the whims of men, or even worse, the whims of clowns like Screwy Dewey. Yahweh God only created one white Adamic man, one race, and he only created that one race called Adam. The other so-called races are a part of the corruption of God's creation. That's well established in Scripture. They are not a part of God's creation. There's only one Adamic race. And they all, as Paul says here, have that same spiritual body provided they have an Adamic natural body. Verse 44. Verse 50. I'm done with my digression, my little rant about some of the clowns, some of the spots in our Christian identity feast of charity. But I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood are not able to inherit the kingdom of Yahweh, nor does decay inherit corruption. Without the spirit, which Yahweh imparted to the Adamic race alone out of all of the beings of his creation, one will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. For this reason did Christ tell Nicodemus, because there are a preponderance of corruptions of God's creation in the world, and that's very evident from the scriptures, the epistles of Peter, Paul, Jude, Revelation, Luke 8, Luke 11, John 8. It's very evident throughout Scripture that not everybody here has here on earth has that spirit. John tells us in his first epistle in chapter 4 to test every spirit to see whether or not it is of God. For this reason did Christ tell Nicodemus that unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh, as it is recorded in John chapter 3. As Paul describes here, the Adamic race bears the flesh of the earthly, but also has the spirit from heaven. And each and every Adamic man and woman will therefore bear the image of the heavenly being born from above. The Apostle John wrote of Christ 
in the opening chapter of his gospel, and he said, from verse 12, But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of God are to attain to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, literally the word bloods in the plural, nor from of the desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from God. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. There are many variations to this psalm, to this verse, and many of the, of, of the ancient codices have basically butchered it. The Codices Sinaiticus and Ephraimi Siri, which is a 5th century codex, have, we shall sleep, but not all shall be changed. The Codex Alexandrinus has, we shall all sleep, but all shall be changed, which in part may be attributed to a scribal error. The 3rd century papyrus, P46, has, We shall not all sleep, and not all shall be changed. The Codex Claromontanus has, We shall all be resurrected, but not all shall be changed. In this instance, our text in the Christoginian New Testament follows the Codex Vaticanus, 5th century, I'm sorry, 4th century, and the Codex and, and the majority text, which agree most closely with verse 52, where it says, for, the, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Where there are no variations in the meanings among these ancient manuscripts, they are very consistent. In verse 52, they are very inconsistent in verse 51. The question is still posed today as to what the children of God shall be like in the restoration. Traditionally, identity Christians refer to the so-called Shekinah glory in relation to this. This is evident in the gospel in the event known as the transfiguration on the mount. And here in part from Luke chapter 9, from verse 28, from the Christian New Testament. And there came to pass, after those words, about eight days, taking Peter and John and Jacob, he, meaning Christ, went up into the mountain to pray. And it happened upon his praying that the image of his face was different and his garment gleaming white. And behold, two men were speaking with him, which were Moses and Elijah, who appearing with effulgence, or with glory, if you read the King James, who appearing with effulgence, had spoke of his departure, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. This event seems to have been for a greater purpose 
than what was immediately evident to the apostles. And perhaps it was meant to be some sort of a glimpse into the future. However, in relation to verse 51 here, we prefer to be more pragmatic following the words of the Apostle John, who stated in chapter 3 of his first epistle, in verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. And if John didn't know, I'm not going to pretend to know. We know that if he is made manifest, meaning Christ, we shall be like him, since we shall see him just as he is. Paul goes on. In an instant, in a dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The codices Alexandrinus and Claromontanus have, and the dead shall be resurrected incorruptible. From one Enoch, from chapter 49, from Richard Lawrence's translation, and it's certain that Paul had the Enoch literature available to him, it's not certain that the Enoch which Paul had is the same which we find in, um, in the translations of Charles or Lawrence. From one Enoch 49, which is actually chapter 50, I believe, in the Lawrence translation. In those days, the saints and the chosen shall undergo a change. The light of day shall rest upon them, and the splendor and glory of the saints shall be changed. The revelation of Joshua Christ was not yet given to John, when Paul wrote this epistle, and it was still nearly 40 years until the revelation was recorded by the apostle. That was actually about 94, 95 AD, maybe as late as 96. I don't really remember offhand, but I established the dating in Christrike, the book on the revelation commentary. Here Paul seems to be interpreting a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 27, from verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall beat off from the channel of the river under the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. And they shall come, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship Yahweh in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Last great trumpet. The outcasts in Egypt, and those ready to perish in Assyria, that doesn't mean they stayed in Egypt, or stayed in Assyria. They are references to the children of Israel 
who had suffered captivity in those places. And Paul says, this decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal to be clothed in immortality. From Psalm 63, from verse 1. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, he wants to be clothed in incorruptibility. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass, death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? In verses 54 and 55, there are several significant variations among the manuscripts, which we will include in the notes to the program. None of them make any significant change to the general meaning of Paul's words. Only one of them is that the, um, the majority text has Hades in one place. In place of grave or death. At the end of the at the end of verse fifty four, Paul quotes from Isaiah twenty five eight. And we have already identified a passage from Isaiah twenty seven, chapter twenty seven, as the likely inspiration for Paul's words in verse fifty two. Here in verse 55, Paul offers a quote from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. In Isaiah chapter 25, we read, Thou shalt bring down the noise of the strangers, as the sheep in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, and the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the leaves well refined. And he will destroy in his mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death and victory, and Yahweh God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken it. 
Then from where Paul quotes Hosea chapter 13, within a condemnation of the sin of the northern tribes of Israel. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance will be hid from my eyes. Similarly, we read in Revelation chapter 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Kind of sounds like the Germanic Edas. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. The sea usually referring to the masses of the other peoples. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And the revelation certainly corroborates Isaiah chapter 25 and the future we still await. The promise of overcoming death is related to the immortality of the spirit of Yahweh God within man. And in that sense, death has always been overcome. Although we in this life do not perceive it because we don't obey our God. The serpent told Eve, you shall not surely die. But when she transgressed, she faced death, both she and Adam did die in their flesh, not necessarily in their spirit. Certainly not in their spirit. However, in Christ, the works of the devil are destroyed. Because man is to God. Because our Adamic race is indeed eternal. For that is how God created it to be. And his creation shall not fail. It's that simple. Some of my detractors like to say, oh, he preaches salvation based on just race. All you have to be is white. You're saved. Well, that's what Paul of Tarsus says in Romans chapter 5. And here on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, as I've said many times, and the part that my detractors leave off, a man's works, his walk in this life, how he treats his brethren, those things are related to his heavenly reward. And the lack of a reward, as Daniel implies, 
in Daniel chapter 12 makes for a um, at least a less comfortable salvation. Let's keep it that way. That, of course, can only be the decision of God and not of man. Now, the sting of death is guilt, and the power of guilt or sin is the law. But gratitude is to Yahweh, in whom we are being given the victory through our Prince, Yahshua Christ. We don't earn anything, because all men sin and fall short of the glory of God, without exception. Knowing this, our Christian faith should indeed be steadfast. Therefore, my beloved brethren, you become steadfast, immovable, at all times being abundant in the work of the prince, knowing that your toil is not empty with the prince. You do the will of God, and you certainly will have a reward in addition to your salvation. If we have seen so many biblical prophecies throughout history, we should be certain that the remainder of Scripture is also true, and we patiently await their culmination as well. In the face of death, the Christian should therefore be at peace, knowing that he shall indeed overcome death through the Spirit of God within him. Tomorrow night, the Devil of Martin Luther's Dreams. Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks, Druids and Christianity, Part 2. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.